So I would like to congratulate everyone for making it through the second day. If you thought the first day was difficult, sometimes the second day is more difficult. Um, and it really is, as the Buddha described, um, for many of us, for all of us really, it is, does feel at times like swimming against the stream to actually confront our minds and our bodies. It's, it's really heroic in a way. It takes a lot of courage. And so I'm very appreciative of your practice. And one of the things I was thinking about today and thinking of, of with a lot of appreciation for you was that um, in, I was thinking about the Tibetan tradition that I've done a lot of uh, study and practice in for the last almost 20 years. Um, before, the way I was introduced to it, before I was ever encouraged to do any practice, um, I was sent, I, I actually had the good fortune of going to um, to the place in India where the Dalai Lama lives, and this was back in the in the mid 70s, and uh, I was sent rather than sent to my cushion, I was sent to a teacher that he had um, empowered to serve Westerners who spoke English and could share teachings, and for the next two weeks, uh, he shared one teaching over and over again and elaborated on it. And it's a traditional teaching that's, that most people start with to somehow help uh, bend our mind or turn our mind toward an orientation, toward awakening, toward wakefulness, uh, away from our, our regular, our ordinary preoccupations. And, and I use the gesture and the word bending our mind. It, feels like almost bending steel to shift our attention from our, from our ordinary way of thinking. And this is the assumption in the Tibetan tradition. So they over and over, they offer this teaching called the Four Reminders, and I'm just going to name them. I'm not going to elaborate on them. But the Four Reminders that uh, one is uh, uh, asked to really contemplate and take to heart is the Number one, the preciousness of human birth, the preciousness of, of, of being alive here and now. And it's understood, at least in the cosmology of, of, of um, the Dharma, whether you believe it or not, you're not, in, you're not asked to believe it, but it's understood that there, there are just cycles of existence and perhaps many, many lifetimes. And it's possible over those many lifetimes to be born in all kinds of states of being both metaphor for the states of being that we can be born in this life, states of hell, states of heaven, states of pleasure, pain, the whole range, but perhaps even literally born into um, to realms of existence, animal realms, uh, there's realms called the hell realms, the, um, the heaven realms, etc., etc. But it's very rare and precious to be born in the, in the human realm. It's difficult to attain and easy to lose. It's very vulnerable. And we, it, of course, the second of those mind-changing reflections is that everything that is born dies, that we're, as one teacher put, we're sinking ships from the moment we're born. Or as the Wiley's Dictionary uh, translation of the word birth, the leading cause of death. <laughs> uh, so, so reflecting on impermanence, it, putting in perspective the the nature of our own existence, helps to shake us to a certain degree out of our, um, our 
trance that this life is endless. And it's also spoken about in other wisdom traditions. In the Bhagavad Gita, it's talked about as um, there's this dialogue between Arjuna and somebody, and I don't remember the characters, but in the, in the dialogue, the question is asked, what's the most wondrous thing in this world? And the response is, the most wondrous thing in this world is that billions or millions or billions are dying around, all around us every day, but somehow we don't think it will happen to us. That this is the most wondrous thing. Our capacity for a kind of self-deception and ignorance of this fact is it's astounding. But yet, um, it's, we all understand it as well. There's a way that it's just, it goes out of our consciousness. So the preciousness of human birth, the difficulty to attain, the ease of losing it, the, the law of impermanence, that anything that we hold near and dear will come and go. Um, everything. And the third mind-changing reflection, something to really contemplate, is that, uh, that every action, uh, every action of our body, our speech, our mind, everything that we do, produces a result. Every cause produces a result. And so if, and depending on the motivation behind those actions, if the motivation is wholesome or kind or generous or compassionate, you get one, one result. If, it's, um, if the intention behind an action is unwholesome, to cause harm, uh, not for someone's benefit, overly self-aggrandizing um, um, or selfish produces a different result, maybe the same action. But that every action produces a result. And in fact, uh, as one famous uh, passage, I think this is from Padmasambhavi, said, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. Now this is not meant to be understood as personal as you did something and you get this result and therefore you are to blame. It's not about blame. It's about understanding causes and conditions and how the myriad causes and conditions come together to produce our life. Many of the causes, in fact most of the causes, we could say are non-personal. The influences of teacher, culture, etc., etc., etc. But if we want to understand our past, we, we can look at our present condition. If we want to understand our future, we have to look, we look at our present actions. And it speaks, the positive view of this, and that's really been inspiring to me, is that it reminds us that when we are here and now, oriented toward this very moment that you are sitting here, we, are, we arrive in an open field, an open space that Deborah has been referring to, this moment is completely open when we are conscious to, um, to be watered or planted with the seeds of, um, of, of our thoughts, our words, our actions that can either produce um, heaven or, or hell. As one uh, poem from Hafiz says, you carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. (laughs) 
he doesn't stop there. At the end, he's, and this goes with the spin here, the, the positive view of it. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So it really speaks to this creative power that is available to us in every moment. When we are absorbed, preoccupied, unconscious, carried along by the winds of, of our actions, uh, and a lot of those actions blinding us to, our, to this creative possibility, when we're carried along, there's absolutely nothing we can do. But when we wake up and encourage this wakefulness, even this moment, not just waiting till you, the talk is over and to go back to your cushion, but even this moment, if you begin to derive an appreciation for its, um, its pregnancy, its possibility for birth of, a, of, a, um, of anything, depending on where, you, where your attention is directed. Now, of course, we will experience the fruits of where we have dwelled before in those previous present moments. But there is that opportunity when we wake up, when in those moments we are mindful, to begin to continue to plant seeds of a kind of future present moment that will um, to be to our advantage. So I, I went on a little long about the karma part. And it's an impossible topic to even talk about, but I just thought I would talk about that one part of it. So there's the preciousness of human birth, the, uh, the reflection on the fact of impermanence, anything that arises has the nature to pass away, the, um, the lawfulness of um, that everything, every action produces results, and last but not least, the encouraged reflection is on, at least the way it's translated, as it was translated to me, was that um, samsara, the word samsara, samsara is defective. The defects of samsara. And samsara is the word for endless, it's generally translated as endless wandering, but often translated as the cycles of of becoming, the cycles of birth, sickness, old age, and death, and the cycles of existence that go round and around as though we're on, on this gerbil wheel that just keeps going around and around. And we keep expecting uh, some uh, engaged in something that has the nature to change. We keep expecting that changing experience, some sight, some sound, some smell, some taste. We expect it to deliver some lasting happiness. And because of our blindness, our ignorance, we keep looking for, for love in all the wrong places. And it keeps us on this cycle, if you haven't noticed, of um, looking forward, obsessed with what next. Any of you notice that today? Any toppling forward? Just a few of you. I don't believe that. So. I'm mentioning these, these reminders very briefly, but the encouragement is that we contemplate these over and over. And I remembered that when, we, when I came to a retreat, uh, Vipassana retreat, and in fact at the beginning of this retreat, as beautiful and as, um, as uh, ancient a ritual as the taking of the refuges is, 
we basically drop the refuges on you, uh, in a way. The refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I think that sometimes uh, this is the, these refuges are our opportunity to, it's the opportunity within this tradition of practice to really orient ourselves toward a different kind of, of refuge. Because most of us have been taking refuge uh, in what we've been taught. We, have all, we all look for refuge. We look for a safe haven. We look for a safe haven uh, of some place that gives us relief in our life. Does that seem to resonate with you? All of us have this, this very sincere longing to find a safe refuge. But unfortunately, what we have been offered is exemplified by a character named Spence, who in this advertisement from 1998, and I think he really is the composite of many of us, of at least a part of many of us, Spence is pictured with a, um, in a lotus posture, but behind him is a lot of stuff. And Spence puts it this way, or Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> I'm debating about reading the rest. That's why he also has the new Ford Ranger. So he can seek wisdom on a mountaintop, take off in hot pursuit of enlightenment, and connect with Mother Earth by looking no further than into the planet's coolest four-door compact pickup truck. (laughs) He says it gives him easy access to inner peace, which makes him one happy soul. This is the refuge that we have been inculcated with day in and day out to be one with everything, to find that cessation of suffering, we must have one of everything. <clears throat> and it is, is bred a, uh, a culture that is, uh, that is spinning like that gerbil. Sogil Rinpoche puts it this way, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara, and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable, environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. 
as one master put it, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, and all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. How do you feel when you hear this? <laughs> I have mixed feeling. You know, it's very hard hitting, but at the same time, I'm, uh, there's, there's something in me that wants to see it the way it really is. I don't want to be, I don't want to be living in a, in a trance of um, looking for happiness in places that I won't experience it. So instead of, that's just one example of, of the, um, the refuges that we have practiced taking. And we come to a retreat and we're invited to take a different kind of refuge. We're reminded as we are in, in many wisdom traditions that, you know, that all, in a sense, all mystics, all uh, awakened beings, all way showers uh, have realized uh, through their, their practice, through their, their yearning, uh, that each of us, uh, that you, that I, that, that all of us are what we are looking for. This is the, this is the open secret, this is the universal uh, truth that is pointed to again and again, that you are what you are looking for. And as I say that, I, I look at you and I, and I see that, um, that consciousness, that wakefulness that, uh, that is at your heart, at your core, may not be the way that you think about yourself. But it's clear that that each of us has within us that, that uh, intrinsic um, freedom, enoughness, peace, when we're not so busy reminding ourselves of what we are not or what we don't have. Check it out for a moment. This truth, this true nature that Deborah has referred to many times, has been obscured by our, our conditioning, by the messages we have received, our habits, and, there has, and, uh, and where we have looked for, that, for a sense of relief. It has generated a sense, for most of us, of a high level of, of dissatisfaction. And we've become quite oblivious, quite ignorant of that, of that true nature. And we are as this, that jug, whatever the master was, we have to, we do wander endlessly astray, looking for some relief and completely ignoring, for the most part, uh, that what we are actually looking for, and again, this is metaphor, but what we are looking for is what is looking. So to turn this way, to look to this frontier rather than to that frontier. Look right back at our own face. This is the, uh, you could say, the road less traveled. This is the, 
the way that m- most don't go. So the, the refuge in the Buddha is the reminder that you not only have that capacity to realize this true nature, that you are the Buddha. And the only reason you do not understand this is because you, as Kala Rinpoche put it, is because of the entrenched view that you think you're not the Buddha. And when I say Buddha, the Buddha means awake, means the one who is awake, the one who knows. But we've we've gotten so habituated to a, a repeated belief system of being bound, of being, um, of being not enough, of being um, limited, that it has become the gospel truth in our own minds and only in our own minds. Because when we are even free for a moment of our cherished views, our ideas, our belief systems, those simple moments of simply being mindful, what can we say about ourselves right now? How does that square your immediate direct experience? How does that square with what you tell yourself every day? So the Buddha Refuge in the Buddha is a reminder to turn toward ourselves, to to, an encouragement to look within for that that awakening, to recognize that we have this capacity within our very mind stream to know what's happening. This incredible jewel, this healing power of mindfulness, of awareness. that when this awareness is nurtured, it's in, it is encouraged, it is practiced, that all the qualities, the quality of compassion that Deborah spoke so beautifully about last night, quality of love, the quality of wisdom and discernment, all of these flow from this, from this natural presence that each of us is here and now, not to be found anywhere else not to be found in my words, but to be found as the, as the one who, who hears. I'm reminded as I, as I point in this way, I, I, I visited this teacher many years ago and, and uh, he kept saying in various ways, he said, anyone, uh, a teacher is someone who points you back to yourself. A preacher is somebody who points you into the world of of ideas, points you to somewhere else. So I'm making an attempt tonight to be a teacher and not a preacher. (laughs) Uh, So if you got nothing else, forget everything I say except the reminder to turn this way. and see what what you experience, and just keep nurturing that. Notice how naturally, without any attempt, you hear my words, there's an awareness of hearing, you can see me, the room is within your awareness, you take everything in, 
if you nurture this sense of, of, um, of awareness through the careful attention moment to moment, grow, all those qualities naturally come. The, the sense of separation begins to melt away. The response of that heart. And of course, the, where it really matters is in real time when we're facing uh, both the difficulties and when we face the, the pleasures of life so that we can really experience them. So all the qualities are inherent, are um, within the nature of, of your own mind. Your own mind is the Buddha. And we offer the different refuge uh, than our conventional or worldly um, teachings in offering a refuge in the Dharma. Where do we ordinarily take refuge? We take refuge in the world of, um, I'll call it the world of the deep desire for things to be different than the way they are. This is, this is the refuge of the world. The refuge of the Dharma is the refuge in this moment. I sounded like Deborah as I said that. This moment. <laughs> this moment as it is. That no matter what it is that you're experiencing, Every experience, if it is known, if it is known with awareness, every experience becomes the cause of awakening. Every experience that is known freshens, strengthens, brightens the awareness that knows it. So it doesn't matter. We use everything this is a this is a equal equal um, opportunity awareness. Everything can come in, and we invite as the part of the taking refuge in the Dharma means coming face to face, come to terms within our own mind of of the experiences in our own mind, meaning both inside and outside. Come to terms with the inevitable. Be mindful of the inevitable winds that blow across our life, the, what are called the eight worldly winds, the winds of, of praise and what that feels like, the, the winds of blame, the winds of pleasure, the winds of pain, the winds of loss, the winds of gain, uh, the winds of fame and the, and the winds of shame. That all of those, everything that some very pleasant, some very painful, we use it all in the service of waking up, in the service of developing that great heart of equanimity, of compassion, of love. Not only that, and you are probably now experts after a few days, we use the, the tormenting states of mind that present themselves uh, when we stop, keep quiet, and look within. We use them as Trungpa Rinpoche called the manure of Bodhi, we use the state of wanting. Did any of you have any wanting today? Did any of you want what you didn't have? Did any of you 
have the sense that whatever you wanted, that unless you had it, you could not be happy. Now I know for a fact because people reported, uh, have reported this in groups and when I've spoken to them, that, and I know this from universally from having led many practice periods before, that one of the number one wants, desires, is for <laughs> the bell to ring. The secret to happiness. <laughs> one person had calculated it right up to the 40 minute period in the sitting is when things start to wiggle and then the restlessness occurs and the pain and then the, the desire for the bell to ring. And of course then the bell rings and as we all do at that point where we have had the, the good fortune of getting what we want, there is a momentary sense of ah, relief. And it's assumed that that experience that pleasure, whatever that might have been, was the, was the cause of, of my um, temporary happiness. But what we fail to notice, that what really brings the sense of relief is the, uh, not so much the bell, that's, that's just a sound and it's known, but what brings the relief is the letting go, is the cessation, the falling away of that demand in our mind, that want, that sense, I have to have this, I need it in order to have relief. This is the trance of wanting that can be used in our practice as manure. So it's so easy in our, in our um, life to, especially when you hear teachings about the potential hypnotic effect of the wanting mind and of desire, it's easy to start to impose some idea. I shouldn't want, I shouldn't want the bell to ring. I shouldn't want anything because desire causes suffering. Have you ever heard that one? Pretty soon we've turned into, instead of being open and awake and interested in the nature of wanting and the nature of our mind and what causes suffering, what brings to the end of it, and discovering the living reality of that and a living understanding, our own personal awakening, we impose a view on ourselves and then become tight, rigid, uh, fundamentalist Buddhists <laughs> with an irritating odor about us. So the invitation is to actually use that feeling of wanting the bell to ring as a place of curiosity, as a place of exploration. One of the, what can be a tormenting state and of course, I use a very mild example, although some people probably have felt it to be like a torture test, but that's a relatively mild example. There is an opportunity every time a desire comes into our mind to, at least the invitation is to withdraw our attention from the object, which is the bell, and to explore that state of wanting. Because even our greatest desires that produce a kind of pleasant feeling on a, on a certain level, the level of the image and the expectation and the hope, if we look at the underlying experience of wanting, often it's a turbulent, it's a, it's a burning kind of feeling. It's a sense of, I can't, I can't be at ease. 
And often, when we have actually taken our attention from the, from the object, from the picture that's been created in our mind, or the compelling story of what I think I have to have in order to be happy, and paid attention to that state of mind, we understand it directly. We realize it as a changing state of, of the mind, changing like a weather pattern that comes and it goes. And sometimes without ever having gratified that desire, because it has met that feeling state, has met the light of awareness, the awareness has brightened and it has rendered that state of mind less, um, less demanding, less powerful, and often will melt away anyway. So start to explore that. You'll have ample opportunity since this is the land, the world of the wanting mind. And I know the aversive mind got plenty of exercise today, which is the second common mental state that can be used as the manure of awakening, our refuge in the Dharma, the truth of what's presenting itself. Today, the talk of the retreat, at least in, partly in one of my groups, was the, um, the, the mysterious alarm that went off in the hall at 11 o'clock that produced... Um, this is great grist for the mill because it produced a lot of uh, um, a range of reactions, but a lot of them were aversive reactions to, you know, to a kind of drama. Could be as simple as thinking about, you know, why is that alarm still on, and did that person do it on purpose? Did they, <laughs> did they? Um, and there was a range, of course, that, of compassionate responses, that poor person who may feel humiliated or embarrassed or whatever for having an alarm. But very probably many people had an aversive reaction. The attention got fixated on the alarm. And the, the compelling story was, if that person would turn off their alarm, then I could have some relief. That, that, that my upset about this is caused by that alarm. But what we realize in the invitation of the Dharma is to realize that that alarm cannot cause upset. That upset has everything to do with the habitual or conditioned mental reaction to that, the mental state that comes in relationship to that, that has everything to do with with the habit within our own stream of consciousness, our own mind stream. And the good news is this that whole drama can be uh, a, um, a practice opportunity to recognize the sound. It would be ideal if we could just hear the sound of the alarm as, oh, hearing, hearing, and not even overlay the concept of alarm on it. Just hearing. Let it appear and disappear. That would be wonderful. But it doesn't always work that way. Very often, and almost with every experience, we ex- there's the experience of something, and depending on our associations with that, we'll have some kind of charge or some kind of reaction. And so for many people, because we generally have a value of silence, the habitual response is aversion. So in the case of using that as practice, as the manure for bodhi, as refuge in the Dharma, we notice the sound. We then notice what follows the sound, which is the mental reaction. We don't try to delete that reaction. We don't create a new identity that's going to say, now I'm going, to, I'm going to pull out the sword and get rid of that and never have an aversive reaction again. We simply recognize, oh, aversion is arising. Aversion's not me. It's not mine. 
It's not, it's just, a, it's another, it's another changing state of mind. Meanwhile, the noticing, the curiosity about that state itself has brightened the awareness, has strengthened the awareness. It has not interfered at all with awareness. Awareness doesn't care what it's noticing. It simply wants to know what's true. So if you can, take, a, take an interest in these states of mind. These states of mind, unnoticed, without the light shining on them, will lead us to that endless um, that wait, that endless hope that things will turn out different. That somehow will be held the way I'd like to think about it over there, will be hail, held hostage to whether or not that person turns off their alarm. That's a kind of partial, that's a, that's a, a kind of prison. So we have the common states of desire, aversion, common state of, of restlessness that usually comes in the form of worry or guilt, you know, thinking obsessively about the past or about the future. Worry, tethering our sense of well-being to, the, to whether things work out or not. There's always that chance that it, that it won't, and it produces a sense of anxiety and uncertainty and restlessness. Of course, restlessness can be just simply a, a state of physical agitation. It can be just, a, a, just a, one of those weather fronts. But when our life is a, when, we, when it goes unnoticed, that, that discomfort tends to spawn a lot of compulsion a lot of distraction and kind of dims our, dims our appreciation of awareness, appreciation of this present moment. So the invitation is to actually feel it, to sense what restlessness is like, to use it to keep awakening our awareness, our mindfulness, to use the, and its flavors of worry. What's worry like? Let me feel a state of worry. Let me feel the state of guilt or remorse or whatever. The, that state is that comes with, with that dwelling in, in the repetition of past events. So then nothing is outside of the practice. Nothing has to be gotten rid of. All in the service of awakening. Refuge in the Dharma. And of course, Deborah so beautifully pointed us this morning to using this ever-present refuge of the body that this body is, and however it's presenting itself, learning how to navigate the field of sensations and and the reactions in our body, pleasant or unpleasant, is part of our doorway, um, our way home. Not something to, we don't have to make our body open, we don't have to wait until it's free of pain, we use the very pain. The cure, as Rumi puts it, the cure for pain is in the pain. So anything that can be known with awareness, which simply means making that very subtle but profound shift from being just lost in whatever's happening to noticing it. Ah, this is pain. This is wanting. This is thinking. This is hearing. This is hating that sound. This is being ravenously hungry. This is, as 
This is the mind. This is somebody who tracked their experience on retreat. Or, oh, actually, it's a different story. Hey, Guru, I've always wondered what you guys do up here on the mountain all day. Well, at sunrise, I get up, eat a pa- handful of parched corn and start meditating. And then at noon, I eat another handful of parched corn and go back to meditating until dark when I stop and eat a little more parched corn. Fantastic. What do you meditate about? Espresso, chocolate-covered raisins, pizza, french fries, hot dogs, banana split, pancakes, potato chips, donuts, baked Alaska, Twinkies, and more espresso. So this is just to see the mind do this. It is an amazing show. We are completely crazy. And it's something that we can develop a very friendly relationship with. We have such a, um, a support system internally. I think Deborah was really alluding to that. When we meet, when we meet the pain with love, how, how that produces compassion. And actually, the, the uh, studies that are being done, the brain studies on the power of mindfulness, a lot's being done at UCLA, and I, I may have this information a little inaccurate, but my understanding is that the, that the effect in the brain when a person applies mindfulness to their experience and their emotional life, uh, it simulates, uh, simulates a lot of what occurs in the, uh, as the effect on the brain of being cared for by a loving presence, by a parent or uh, a loved one, and that that really can be and really should be the function of our mindfulness as a, as a doorway to, to loving-kindness. Even though we have become um, we have got, we've become habituated to, um, out of love for ourselves, to um, distract ourselves and move away. And some of that is very wise because we haven't had the tools so, so much to be able to confront the, the pains and the challenges and uh, the stresses of life uh, in a skillful way. Uh, even though we have habitually done that, our hearts, when they get um, our heart, when I say heart, I mean our mind and heart are the same word. In my, at least it is in, the, in, the, um, in Sanskrit. Our hearts really love to see what's going on, to know what's true. And I know from what's, what's happened in my own practice is when I've really seen something, a painful truth, it, there's a certain uh, excitement that comes. There's a certain happiness that comes from seeing how it is, even if it's painful. On one long practice period, it was a six-week period, I had gotten um, kind of my mind in general in my life had become um, moderately quiet. And I had subtly formed a little identity around being, um, being peaceful. I was busy being peaceful. But then I went on this practice period, and I thought that I was pretty content, peaceful and content. And then I started noticing, literally countless times every day, my mind reaching for something else. 
pushing away something, reaching for something, pushing away something, reaching. At first, I was completely shocked how much my mind was inclining towards something that wasn't actually happening, how obsessed it was in some way to, to get somewhere, to have something different happen. But the more I looked at it, I got really excited. I, was, I became thrilled to, to be, um, at least for that moment, to have that illusion about myself dispelled, to actually see how it really was. And then it became where the action was, and I wanted to see, and I, and I encourage you to take a real interest. Get excited about how crazy you are. <laughs> because that which knows, knows you're crazy is not crazy. That which knows that you're crazy is untouched by craziness. That is your true home, your true nature. And the more you simply notice things, the more you, you awaken to that which is unborn, untouched. Um, it's not seeing, not recognizing causes us a lot of suffering. As R.D. Lang put it, the range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. So we come on retreat and we take refuge in the Buddha, that capacity to awaken and that that intrinsic wakefulness that you are, that you have, that's the very wakefulness through which you're perceiving right now. We take refuge in the Dharma, the truth of things as they're presenting itself, and we take refuge in the Sangha. And we perhaps already can recognize the enormous support. Sangha means community, and it it comes, I think it's connected to the word in the Sanskrit called satsang, which means Sat means truth, and Sangha is community. Uh, the community that gathers uh, for, the, for a focus, for the purpose of awakening to truth, that there's a sacred power that grows when people come together in that way, called satsang. We call it Sangha, and we feel the, the support from each other. When, when I'm sitting there uh, filled with doubt, filled with grasping, filled with restlessness, whatever it is, I look over and I forgot, um, maybe you alluded to this in your talk, how it looks like the next person is sitting there like a Buddha, like a statue. And, and we may get into some comparing about that, but often there's a kind of inspiration. If they can do it, I can do it. And it, it puts us back on our, on our cushion. So that's one kind of taking refuge in the Sangha. But today when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the, the enormous outpouring of, um, of energy and generosity that has been shared over, at least in this tradition, over 2,500 years of beings just like you who have taken the 
teachings of the Buddha and the Dharma, put them to practice and come to some realization of their own. And out of that, those, the natural qualities that flow from that wakefulness, they have devoted themselves to passing on the teachings through a living, a living lineage that has gone on for these 2,500 years. It's not that they have just passed on some words. They have passed it on through their generosity of spirit, through their, through their love, through their compassion. And the fact that it is available to us, it is alive, that we can really recognize it in our own lives or test it in our own practice, uh, is, the, um, is really the legacy of all of that living current of, of people who practiced. And I was reflecting on this today that there is not one insight that I have experienced in my own practice, and maybe it's true for you, that is that can said to be completely independent or separate from the input or the, the influence of a teacher, that I've had the blessing of, of uh, receiving teachings from or support from. And it's a reminder that... Um, the Sangha and, it, and this living transmission is a reminder that, that the um, teachings are to be found in our own um, aliveness, in our own living experience. I don't know if this resonates with you in the way that it does with me, but it's, um, this is not a dead teaching. It's not something that you have to adopt. It's something that you make alive in your own, in your own moment-to-moment practice. And what that teaching that has been passed on for 2,500 years, this, this refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, is not just a teaching on uh, suffering, which is sometimes it gets the Buddhism gets this view, oh, this, it's about dukkha. And it is, it is wonderful that, that, the, um, that the teachings and the teachers over the centuries have been willing to say, as Deborah did so beautiful, this is how it is. I remember the first time I heard the, the Four Noble Truths, the truth that there is stress, there is suffering, there is, there is suffering of being born, of sickness, of old age, of dying, of not getting what you want, of not wanting what you get. There's, and the cause of that is this grasping at what's next and there's, and there's an end to it and there's a path to the end. When I first heard this and it was, it was shining this light on, on the fact of the stress of existence, that it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be, I just wept. I was so happy that somebody was saying it. There was something about that that really, really triggered the, the heart. But it really is a practice and that teaching on dukkha is really in the service of the possibility of awakening, of, you could say, even the possibility of happiness. Not perhaps the happiness that you normally associate with happiness, but the Buddha was called Sukhiya, the happy one. He was not called the great sufferer. <laughs> but the happiness of a Buddha is a happiness that he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means beyond the world. 
But that may seem like it's separate. But what it, another way of describing it, it means unstuck from the world. A happiness that doesn't depend on things being a certain way. A sense of well-being that doesn't depend on whether you get what you want or want what you get. A sense of presence that can pervade even when you've had your deepest loss. I remember really being tested with this uh, when my father passed away. And I grieved deeply and I retched and I went through a lot. But there was a place that, that knew that this is just the way it is and was not, that was really at home even in the face of that. And that was, a, that was kind of a, a big test. But Lokutra Sukha, the possibility of, uh, of our practice. And, it's, um, and it was in his evolution of his understanding that, that he came to this um, possible. He was looking. He was full of desire. The Buddha had what I call uh, just not an ordinary desire. I'm sure he started with those. He had a holy desire, a burning desire. So any talk about, uh, about letting go of desire, it's insane. Every one of us has desires. Unfortunately, where we put our devotion is often in desires that lead to more desire, that lead to, to the kind of desire that gives us what the Buddha called temporary sense of happiness, that relief that comes when the bell rings. What he called lokiya sukha means worldly happiness, the happiness that depends on satisfying a hunger, that depends on getting what you want. That, that those kinds of desires, no doubt, give tr- tremendous deliciousness. They give pleasure. They give comfort. And the fact that we can even give rise to them, enjoy them, and enjoy the fruits of them, all the kinds of desires in the world, suggest, at least according to the, the teachings, suggest that, that your mind is at least um, free enough to dwell in, in pleasure, to, to really enjoy the world of the senses. But what dwelling in these kinds of desires leaves in their wake is, is a strengthened, like flexing a muscle, a strengthened habit of being dissatisfied. A series of fleeting losses, you might say. Even the, uh, the most delicious experiences pass away, and that leaves in its wake a little sorrow, what he called anicca dukkha, the, the, the stress of impermanence. So he said there are these two kinds of happiness, and mostly we dwell in, in our lives and devote ourselves to this lokiya sukha, like Spence, who thinks to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. So he called this the happiness of bondage, the happiness of slavery, and said, this world is delicious, but this is not where your attention should dwell. And this is what he realized. Whether or not you believe that or practice that, that will have to come out of your own understanding, your own practice. But not to say, oh, yes, worldly desires are impermanent and I have to stop them. You won't until you actually feel that 
devoting yourself to fleeting pleasures produces uh, a burning sensation that you want to take your hand off the stove. Until it comes close, it's alive, then we just keep dwelling where we ordinarily do. In his case, though, he left that world. He, he devoted himself to practice, doing many of the same elements that we're practicing here tonight. And in his case, he developed the powers of attention using that same quality that you're asked to do again and again, gathering your mind, connecting it with an, with an experience, and develop very quickly what's called concentration or samadhi. And whether you gather it, your attention toward one single experience over and over, or whether you gather your attention to changing experiences, that's called kanaka samadhi, or the samadhi, the concentration that comes through paying attention to changing experiences. Nevertheless, this attention moment to moment to these changing experiences or to one singular object, the breath, or I think that there are many practices, colors, many different objects for, for tranquility practice. Many people use mantras. In doing those kinds of practices, he attained a, a kind of happiness that he called um, the, the great happiness of concentration. He went from the happiness of sense pleasures to the happiness of concentration, enjoyed uh, what he described as unmixed happiness. His mind, because he was not dwelling in that, that ever-changing, fleeting world of, of uh, unreliable experiences, was not being, um, it, his mind was so steady, so unified in those moments that he didn't have any of those hindrances of wanting something, of not wanting something, of restlessness, aversion, a total quiescence of the waves of the mind, somewhat like the joy of, of sleeping, of being asleep. You're not troubled sometimes. Of course, many people are troubled by their sleep, but, but in this case, it was a kind of unmixed happiness. Great joy came, and it lasted a lot longer than the ordinary pleasures. But then he realized, through careful attention, he saw that even this experience of so-called sukha, the opposite of dukkha, this sukha was actually dukkha. This was sukha-dukkha. <laughs> and what is sukha-dukkha? What is sukha-dukkha? that this kind of pleasure was still temporary. Even though it was longer lasting, it was still subsumed under the umbrella of unsatisfactory, unreliable, ultimately the cause of disappointment, and ultimately, as many of you have seen when you've had periods when your mind and body have come together, the cause of searching for more of it. Many people come to a retreat to have that experience again from a previous retreat. And of course, if we didn't have a taste of that kind of harmony, we wouldn't keep practicing. But it, at, So in one hand, as he described it, it's a springboard to awakening. But at the, the same breath, he said that's a corruption because we tend to get attached and go chasing after. So that left him without... Um, without any guides after that. And that's what, that was the most of what anyone was teaching, was 
all anyone was teaching was conventional happiness in a way, with some rarefied versions called concentration. But that's when he went out on his own and he sat down and he decided, he gave rise, gave full focus to that, that deepest desire, that desire to find a reliable refuge. And he paid attention, just like you are, moment to moment to moment. And he saw again and again and again, as we are able to when we practice, that whatever arises passes away. Whatever arises and passes away cannot be said to be um, me or mine. It cannot be owned. It has, its, it has a nature. It's doing its own thing. It has its own nature. And as his mind stopped grabbing this and pushing that and kept seeing things in their simplicity appearing and disappearing, maybe you saw this a little bit today, just how the, the ever-changing nature of the breath or the movement of sensation or the movement of moods or the flow of thinking, in noticing that with full attention, he, as he saw the arising and passing, his mind just stopped reacting. And he fell into a state, which he called, uh, at least as it's been written about, vipassana happiness. The happiness of equanimity, of a mind that's not grasping, not pushing away. This was his first taste of Lokutra Sukha, a mind that didn't depend on what was happening. A sense of, okay, I can take this too. As Galway Cannell put it, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Only that, but that. So it just, it is what it is. And that's what I want. And as his mind rested in this non-reactive openness, feeling all the joys, all the sorrows, all the temptations of the mind, every, everything, free to love, to laugh, to scream, to everything. As his mind stopped, as his uh, mind stopped reacting to that, it relaxed and it, it opened. And it dawned on him in this flash of insight that, that Lokutra Sukha, that unshakable well-being, that untouchable well-being that all of us deeply long for, revealed itself as none other than the very nature of his own mind, the very nature of your mind. And so this was very subtle to see, to have this, um, to see that it wasn't to be found anywhere. It's like trying to see your own face. But he saw that there were those like you and me and all of us who are at the retreat here right now, that there are those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And if pointed in the direction of this capacity to train, to turn the mind toward its training of wakefulness, that you could realize, that we could realize that same freedom. Not dependent on a retreat, but to use every moment of our life, but of course enhanced by the opportunity to give sustained attention without uh, distractions. Uh, and the encouragement to aim for this highest happiness, and it's understood that it's the beauty of the Dharma that if you aim for that, then all the other kinds of pleasures come in the wake of it. It's not that you have to give everything up, 
which is another one of those ideas. First you have to find the one who's going to give things up. I don't know if that makes sense. but So I just want to end on, I know this has gone on a little long, but I just want to end with a, one of my favorite poems from a Tibetan teacher named Gendon Rinpoche called Free and Easy. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or to undo. Whatever momentarily arises in the body-mind has no real importance at all and has little reality whatsoever. Why identify with and become attached to it, passing judgment upon it and ourselves? Far better to simply let the entire game happen on its own, springing up and falling back like waves, without changing or manipulating anything. And notice how everything vanishes and reappears, magically again and again, time without end. Only our searching for happiness prevents us from seeing it. It's like a vivid rainbow which you pursue without ever catching, or a dog chasing its own tail. Although peace and happiness do not exist as an actual thing or place, it is always available and accompanies you every instant. Don't believe in the reality of good and bad experiences. They are like today's ephemeral weather, like rainbows in the sky. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is there, open, inviting, comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any further. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own heart. Nothing to do or to undo, nothing to force, nothing to want, and nothing missing. Marvelous. Everything happens by itself. So just a moment of quietness. You don't have to change your position. May all beings recognize their true nature here and now. Thank you for your long, enduring attention. We have about 25 minutes now for walking practice, and then we'll sit and have a little... um, chanting, 